0: Father, we thank you for uh, just tonight. We thank you again that we can be back here at Beacon uh, just with our brothers and sisters, that we have this opportunity for fellowship um, and also to be fed uh, from your word. And so I do pray now uh, as we open your word that, uh, Holy Spirit, you would speak to us um, clearly and uh, humble our hearts, give us soft hearts, uh, receptive ears to hear what you have to say. And I pray that the truth of this passage would... um, would speak to us, that we would honestly consider uh, our words. We would consider our character and um, whether we are people of integrity. And I do pray that you would use the preaching of your word um, to form us uh, into people who are like that, uh, people who are consistent and whole uh, and whose words are truthful and and faithful and and meaningful. And so so do that now um, as we listen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: All right, if you have your Bibles,
0: turn with me to Matthew 5, 31 to 37. Matthew 5, 31 to 37. And it's been a few weeks, so let me just review where we are in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay. The Sermon on the Mount is about what it means to be a true disciple. Uh, it talks about what it looks like to be a citizen of God's kingdom and if you guys remember in verse 20 of uh, chapter 5, some people say this is the key verse in the entire Sermon on the Mount. Jesus makes this startling statement, this claim that if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, he says you need a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Right? A righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. And in everyone's eyes, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were the most knowledgeable, the most godly, the most religious, uh, the most uh, spiritual people. Right? And for them, for them to hear Jesus say something like this would have sounded like an impossible standard. But as we've said, Jesus is not commending their righteousness, right? but he is criticizing it. He says that you need a righteousness that exceeds theirs because you need a righteousness that is both inside and out. You need a righteousness that is deep and and wholehearted rather than this dead uh, kind of fake superficial righteousness that the scribes and Pharisees had. And so uh, in verses 21 to 48, kind of the rest of chapter 5, Jesus illustrates what this kind of righteousness looks like. And he uses these six different examples from Old Testament teaching. And each of these examples, you can tell what they are because they start with the same formula. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And uh, he does that because these, these Pharisees, they had this sort of approach to the law where they thought it was all about doing more good things and avoiding doing bad things. And I think we can approach the Christian life like that as well, right? Just do more things, do more good things, don't do like these things. The the Pharisees thought to themselves, as long as we're not guilty of crossing this line or breaking this commandment, whether it was murder or adultery or divorce or perjury, as we're going to see in our passage, they thought, okay, we're good. But Jesus says that if you've gotten sinfully angry at your brother, then you've murdered him in your heart. Or if you've looked at another woman uh, with lust, uh, lustful intent, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. Jesus shows us that obedience is not just about the commandments themselves, right? Or how how close you can get without crossing the line. But obedience is about reflecting God's character as well. That's what verse 48 says. You shall be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And so when we get to our verses for tonight, we'll be in verses 31 to 37. um, We see the same thing going on. Um, As we'll see, the Pharisees were so overly concerned with the externals that they created these loopholes to ensure that they were still obeying the letter of the law. And Jesus reveals to them that they've missed the whole point, right? You guys don't get it. This is not what it's about. Um, if you guys look in your Bibles in our verses, uh, most of you will probably see two different sections, right? And there's two different headings there. Uh, my Bible, it says divorce and then oaths. Um, as I was studying this passage this week, I was. Tempted to kind of split these up after realizing, like, just how much is in each of these sections. Um, but we're going to take it all in one. And uh, that's okay because these two topics aren't totally random. If you think about it, uh, if we're talking about making promises or making oaths, then your vows in marriage, right, are, are probably one of the most significant promises that you'll make in your lifetime. Um, But even more than that, even at at a deeper level, in both of these sections, whether Jesus is talking about your vows or whether he's talking about just your common everyday promises, he's getting at something more fundamental, uh, which is this. It's what we do with our words. It's what we do with our words. And so let's read our passage. Matthew 5, starting in verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, and do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is the Word of God. Um, back in 2015, uh, some of you weren't born yet. I'm just kidding. I know you guys were born. You're like just a, a child. There's an ancient uh, social media platform called Facebook that made a small, uh, maybe even unnoticed change that they were hoping would have a sizable impact. They decided to replace the maybe button on their events page and to change it to the word interested instead. And you probably weren't around uh, to remember this uh, because it was before your time. If you were on Facebook, that means you lied about your age. (laughs) the interested uh, was less ambiguous, right? That's what they thought. It was less ambiguous than a maybe, and if you clicked on interested, you would still receive notifications, you would still receive updates about the event, and the hope that it was, was that it would increase the likelihood that eventually uh, users would RSVP to whatever this event was. And to me, I don't know, it seems like the same thing, right, like, there's not much difference to me. Maybe it's marginally better. Um, but I understand where they're coming from. And you probably do, too, if you've ever had to plan something, like a friend's birthday party, a get-together, a WACF, or a church event. Uh, because, like, hypothetically speaking, if you're a college pastor trying to plan a ministry event, um, you know, it's helpful to have people respond. Right? <laughs> Especially if it requires food and logistics and things like that. Uh, it makes your job a lot easier, right, when you get this, like, definitive, uh, timely answer. And someone gives you their word, whether or not they'll be there. Now, whether Facebook uses interested or maybe doesn't really matter to me. Uh, Maybe ours vping to that birthday party isn't really that big of a deal. But it does bring up a question that scripture wants all of us to seriously and to honestly consider. And it's this, how much are your words worth? How much are your words worth? Are you a person who keeps your promises and follows through on your commitments? Are you, you someone whose word can be trusted? Now, as you may know, the Bible says a lot about our words. Uh, Jesus says that our words, uh, that the words that we speak come out of the overflow of our hearts. Matthew 12, um, Proverbs says that our words are powerful. It says that death and life are in the power of the tongue. Um, our words, Ephesians 4.29, should be used to build up and not to tear down. They should be thoughtful. They should be fitting to the occasion they should be spoken to give grace to those who hear but in addition to all of those qualities something else that should characterize our words as we see in our passage tonight is that they should be honest they should be truthful they should be consistent and meaningful that our words should carry weight they shouldn't be empty they should be worth something because they are actually communicating what is true And I probably don't have to convince you guys of this, right? But this is so drastically different from the world that we live in today. We live in a world where words are cheap, where they don't mean much, and and commitments and promises are broken every single day, whether it's something as seemingly harmless as just like flaking on plans with a friend, or something as significant as marital infidelity. And especially in our day, it is so easy to do that that without much consequence, right? You can just, like, click a button and change your response, or you can just send a text uh, and tell your friend you're not going to be there. And it's even, like, expected, kind of, right? Sometimes we're surprised when actually someone shows up when they say that they will. By the way, when I, when I say words, I know that words can be very broad. And I'm going to mention commitments and promises and things like that. But this applies to all the other ways that we use our words too. Right? How we talk about others, how we talk about ourselves. But in our passage tonight, Jesus shows us that, shows us that this seemingly insignificant, often neglected part of our lives matters to him. That as his disciples, as citizens in God's kingdom, we are called to be distinct. We are called to recognize that how we use our words, whether they are truthful and meaningful or not, are an opportunity to reflect our King. Now, as we go through this, there's some background information that we have to cover just to help us understand these passages. And so we'll do a little bit of flipping around to other passages. Um, And I'm going to save most of the application and try to tie everything together at the end. Okay, so try to stick with me. We want to understand what Jesus is saying at first. So uh, we'll go through this in uh, three points. First is marriage matters to God. And verses 31 to 32. Look at verse 31 again. Jesus says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, before we jump in, let me just start with one disclaimer. Um, I know that we are talking about a very massive and loaded topic of divorce. And we're looking at like two short verses. And this is not uh, all that the Bible says about divorce. Uh, We're not going to get to all of it. This is not meant to be a comprehensive discussion on the topic. Uh, So you might have questions that just... I don't have time or we don't have the time to address in this particular message. Um, I'd love to talk to you afterwards if that's you. Um, so this is not meant to be comprehensive, but even more than that, though divorce, I think, is like seemingly more of an accepted norm in our days to say that. I know that this topic can still be very personal. Right? It's not just something that's talked about from an ivory tower. Some of you have experienced this firsthand in your own family, Many, even more of you have probably seen the consequences of divorce. And so as we jump in, I just want to acknowledge that. Right? And I hope you know that there is no sin, there's no suffering, that God's sovereignty and the gospel cannot reach and cannot redeem and cannot minister to. Okay, so I want to be sensitive to that. I know we're talking about this, uh, this weighty topic. But from our passage, though, I do hope to offer some clarity about what the Bible does say about divorce. And I do want to give you, as Jesus wants to do for us, this higher view of marriage. So here in verse 31, Jesus refers to this law in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. Uh, I'll just summarize it for you. It basically says that if a man divorces his wife because he has found some indecency in her, that's the phrase it uses, that this man needs to give her this, this legal document, this certificate of divorce, And then if this woman becomes another man's wife and somehow is divorced again, then this first man is prohibited from taking that woman again as her wife. Okay, So that's what the law is talking about. And to us, we hear that, and that seems pretty obscure. That seems like oddly specific. But we need to understand the purpose of this law. The purpose of this law existed was to protect and to regulate and to bring order to this kind of chaotic situation. It was to protect the woman. It was to discourage hasty divorces. It was kind of pointing to the sanctity of marriage. You can't just like walk in and out of marriage like just whenever you wanted to. And so that was kind of at the heart of this this law in Deuteronomy 24, uh, which is what Jesus is quoting. Now with that in mind, turn to Matthew 19. Matthew 19. We'll look at verses 3 to 9. (coughs) But in this passage, Matthew 19, we get a more extended discussion from Jesus about marriage and divorce. And it helps us to kind of understand these two verses in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, And so what was happening in Jesus's day was that there was some debate and there was some controversy over that Deuteronomy 24 passage that I just talked about. And specifically, there is controversy and debate over this interpretation of the phrase, uh, some indecency in her. Right, it says, if a if a man divorces his wife because he has found, and here's the phrase, some indecency in her, and and the debate was over. Okay, what is that referring to? Like, what is some indecency in her? It's basically a question about the legitimate grounds for divorce, and so there were there there was these like two main schools of thought. The more conservative conservative position taught that some indecency referred strictly to sexual immorality. That's what. Uh, yeah, that's the only grounds for divorce. And the other position was more loose. It said basically it was anything that displeased the husband. And if you actually read in like Jewish documents and writings, we see that it was really like almost anything. Like, it, If she was barren, if she had a disability or disease, if she had physical defects. Um, if the in-laws moved to the same city, if she didn't offer uh, sexual relations frequently if not enough, if she didn't perform certain duties at home, if she burned his supper, or if he simply found someone who he thought was more attractive. And so this other position was like, anything that doesn't make the husband happy. And so there's this debate going on. You can kind of hear it in the Pharisees' question uh, to Jesus in verse three. They say to Jesus, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause. Right, and and so they want to know where Jesus stands on the matter. Here's how he responds, verse 4. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? That's Genesis 127. And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's Genesis two twenty-four. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not not man separate. And so they they bring this uh, question to Jesus and in very typical fashion, Jesus doesn't answer their question directly. They're asking him about uh, divorce according to the law of Moses. And what does Jesus say? Well, he responds with the creation account and doesn't talk about divorce. He talks about marriage. And in those two very foundational passages about marriage, we see that God is the one who created marriage, like He is the one who established it, um, that God created it to be exclusive and permanent, that when two people get married, it's not just this like civil contract that takes place, but something new and distinct and significant and profound is happening. That certain ties are being broken and these new ties, this intimate one flesh relationship is formed. Right? Like all of that is happening when people get married and Jesus says that comes from God That's, God decided that and that is what the Pharisees miss they are preoccupied with the grounds for divorce and they're preoccupied with this legal process of okay I gotta write this certificate of divorce right? all this like legal external stuff but Jesus here is talking about the God centeredness and the sanctity of marriage he says what God has joined together let not man separate right? you see the contrast there You keep reading verse 7, and they're still kind of fixated on this original question. They say, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? That's referring to Deuteronomy 24. And so here's where we get a word from Jesus about divorce. And this is informed by what he just said about marriage. And this is similar to our passage in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 8. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed, right? What did the Pharisees say? They said Moses commanded Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. And so what Jesus says is, God didn't intend for divorce. Right? He says, from the beginning, it was not so. He never desires divorce. He never requires it. But because of men's sinfulness, because of their hardness of heart, God gave divorce not as a command but as a concession. And the only legitimate reason for divorce that Jesus gives here in Matthew 23 and in our passage is the grounds of sexual immorality. And why sexual immorality? Well, I think it's because that sin of that nature very uniquely, uh, very significantly interrupts and violates that one flesh bond and covenant of marriage. Now, let me just add one more piece to help of fill out uh, what the Bible teaches about divorce. Um, In 1 Corinthians 7, in that passage, Paul is addressing this question that the Corinthians had about what to do about their current condition after they became a Christian. So he he writes to these different groups of people, people who were single and married, uh, slave and free, circumcised and uncircumcised. And he actually, one of those categories of people he actually writes to, are those who are Christians who are married to unbelievers. And he's trying to answer the question, okay, what do I do about that? Right? And what he actually says to them is if you've just become a Christian, you're married to an unbeliever and your spouse, your unbelieving spouse is cool with staying together, then don't seek a divorce. Right? Like, even that is not grounds for seeking a divorce. But he continues in verse 15 and he says, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. And so if that unbelieving spouse uh, uh, leaves, abandons, um, then that's the only other legitimate grounds for divorce. Okay, so just so you guys know, uh, just kind of a bigger picture of what the Bible teaches. Right, The only two legitimate grounds, sexual immorality and abandonment. But going back to our verses, I think when we hear... Jesus say that, right? And when he says, "Except for sexual immorality," or when we hear Paul's words about abandonment, I know that our first inclination can be to run through these like different hypotheticals, or we think about, okay, like, what about this specific scenario? Does this like fall under what's like legitimate or not? And I don't want to minimize just the great wisdom and thoughtfulness that goes into answering questions like that. But we should recognize that Jesus' view of marriage is so high, it is so sacred, that he says that all remarriage after divorce, except in the case of sexual morality, is adultery. Right? Like That is an extremely strict, uh, strict standard. Now, why does he say that? Well, because in the eyes of God, that first marriage still exists. He's trying to show us that we are not the ultimate authority on marriage. God is. And so Jesus says, you must not think that you can just casually enter in and out of this marriage relationship as if it doesn't mean anything. You must not think so little of your vows and your promises that you make on your wedding day, not just in front of your friends and family, but before the presence of God. You can't think little of that to think that, oh, it doesn't really matter if I go with this person or this person. Now, there's probably so much more that we could say about this topic, but let me just give you one Just brief applicational thought before we move on. Um, In Matthew 19, 10, this is after uh, all that Jesus has taught about divorce. The disciples hear all of this, right? And and they're like, okay, if this is true, then it's better not to marry. If this is true, then who can be married? And I, I think when we read that, we have to give the disciples some credit, right? Because... They didn't arrive at quite the correct conclusion, right? I don't think the correct conclusion is, like again, like no one get married. But I think they understood the gravitas, the, the weight of, of marriage probably better than many of us do. Marriage is a blessing. It is a joy and a good gift from God. It is something given to us to enjoy and to cherish. Um, I am happily married. I know many, or some of our Beacon staff are married. But especially in stark contrast to our culture today, it is not something that we can just take lightly, right? It requires a sober-mindedness, a, a careful consideration, a recognition of the high calling and commitment because marriage is not just a human thing, it's from God. And I know that none of you college students are married, as far as I know, um, but what, this might, what might this mean for you right now, right? As those who are maybe looking ahead, and, and many of you will probably pursue marriage in the future. If that's you, if you desire to get married someday, then how does recognizing the high calling of what marriage is affect what you're doing right now? How does it affect the kind of potential partner or spouse that you are pursuing? How does it affect the kind of person that you are hoping to become, your character? How does it affect how you learn to resolve conflict with other people right now? Or how you fight sin in your own life? Or how you receive counsel from other people? Are you preparing yourself in any way uh, for for that in the future. And even if and when you do get married in the future, I think our passage shows us that you're still going to have to put in the work and the effort and be willing to fight for your marriage every single day. And in Ephesians 5:31 to 32, Paul quotes um, from that same passage, Genesis 2:24 that Jesus quotes from, And he says that this mystery or this uh, a man leaving his father and mother and holding fast to his wife and becoming one flesh, this mystery of marriage, Uh, is profound and he says i'm saying that it refers to christ and the church and what he says there is that god wasn't just looking for this metaphor to kind of like describe christ's love for the church and he's like oh like i'll just choose marriage no he says that god created marriage as a way to reflect christ's love for the church right like that is how significant marriage is and And for us, we need to realize that our sinful hearts aren't so unlike the Pharisees, that we too are tempted to bail. We are tempted to point fingers, to seek our own interests when it comes to loving others, even in the most intimate and cherished relationships that we have, even in the people closest, nearest, and dearest to us. The marriage in particular is this unique opportunity, this this stage to rehearse the love of Christ for his people over and over again. Right, to love someone even when it's hard, or even when you're tired, or even when you don't feel like it, or even when the other person sins against you. Right, that's what marriage portrays. And so knowing all of that, right, Jesus wants to give us this high view of marriage, and that really puts into perspective, okay, this is like what divorce is. This is what's happening when we're talking about divorce. But Christ seeks to form us as his disciples, not just with these handful of monumental, life-changing decisions like who you'll marry, uh, but also in the thousands of smaller decisions, commitments that we make each day. And so this is our next point. Your words matter to God. Uh, Verse 33. Again, you have heard it said that it was, or again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Um, In verse 33, Jesus is not really quoting from a specific passage, but he's rather giving a summary of Old Testament teaching on keeping your promises, keeping your oaths. And for us, uh, we don't really make oaths or, you know, we don't really swear in this way, uh, unless maybe you're in a, like a legal situation, right? Or uh, if you imagine like a courtroom setting, or you think about when the president is inaugurated, someone will raise their, their hand, they will put their hand on the Bible, and they, like, solemnly pledge to fulfill their assigned responsibilities, right? They say something like, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God, right? And they're, like, holding the Bible or something like that. What's the point of all of that? Like, what are they doing when they're making an oath like that? Well, this person is calling upon something or someone that is greater than themselves, whether that's God or the Bible or uh, their grandmother's grave, and they're saying, may this person or may this thing bear witness to the truth of what I say and may they judge me if I don't keep it right? may they judge me if I break my word and in fact that's actually the more precise meaning uh, of what it means to take the Lord's name in vain which is the third commandment it's not just to like say God's name like next to your cuss words right? it's, it's making little of God's name it's using God's name in something like a vow when it doesn't mean anything when you have no intention to keep that vow <coughs> Um, So that's the commandment, right? Um, Keep your oaths. And, uh, And remember, the Pharisees are so concerned about not breaking it. They're so concerned about not crossing the line that they had created this sort of elaborate system where they made their oaths binding or not, depending on what they swore on. And kind of just like in our previous point, there's actually another passage that helps us give a better picture of what's going on. And so turn to Matthew 23. Matthew 23, and we'll be in verses 16 to 22. I won't read all of this, um, but you can at least look at it. In this chapter, Jesus is pronouncing woes on the scribes and Pharisees for their hypocrisy. And uh, one of his specific rebukes is concerning their practice with taking oaths. Verse 16, he says, Woe to you blind guys who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. Verse 18, Or if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on the altar, he is bound by his oath. Are you catching that? They say, okay, swearing by the temple is not binding, but swearing by the gold of the temple, I have to keep my word. Or swearing by the altar is not binding, but swearing by the gift on the altar, that is binding. And actually, there's this whole section in um, the Mishnah, which is the Jewish code of law that was dedicated to this. Things that were binding versus not binding. And it sounds ridiculous, right? Like this is the equivalent of like saying psych, you know, after you say something. Or like, uh, you know, you had your fingers crossed behind your back like the kids do. Or it's like the super small fine print that plays at like 100 mile per hour, you know, after like a commercial that says something. Like it's a loophole. It's a, it's a way of getting out of what you just promised. They basically corrupted the point of making an oath in the first place. And instead of calling on God to assure their truthfulness and their honesty, they created all these ways to avoid referring to God so that they didn't have to keep their work. And what does Jesus say in our passage? He says, uh, similar in Matthew 23 as well. Um, back in chapter 5, he says, verse 34, But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, Or by earth, for it is his footstool. Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And Jesus says, whether you acknowledge it or not, every promise that you make, every word that you speak is before the word of God or before the face of God. Heaven is God's throne. The earth is his footstool. Jerusalem is his city. Even the hairs on your head belong to him. Right? It's impossible to speak a word apart from God, outside of his presence. Now to clarify, when Jesus says, do not take an oath at all, he's not prohibiting absolutely every kind of oath. And we just talked about marriage. right? You make uh, vows in marriage. But rather, he is talking about the kind of twisted system that they had created. Because elsewhere in the Bible, we see that Jesus stood under oath. Or we see that um, the Apostle Paul um, called God as his witness. So it's not prohibiting like every kind of oath at all. Jesus' main concern isn't just the words themselves or even the promises themselves, but our character. That what you do with your words is a demonstration of the consistency or the inconsistency of your life. What you do with your words, whether or not you keep them or not, is a window into how you view God and how you view other people. Does God and others matter enough to you for you to keep your promises? Jesus says there shouldn't be degrees of truthfulness to what you say. You shouldn't have to point to this other thing To or or swear in the name of God to make sure that people get that you are really serious about what you're saying, because your character should be consistent. Right, your whole life should attest to that already. Guys, is that true of your life? Are you a person who is truthful and consistent? Do you follow through on your promises? Can you be counted on when you commit to something? Do you say what you mean and mean what you say? Are you a person of integrity? Right, that word uh, integrity, it comes from the word integer. You guys remember what an integer is um, from math? Right, it's a complete number. Right. It's not a fraction or decimal or whatever. It's a whole number. It's undivided. It's, it's complete as opposed to fragmented. That, that should be the kind of person you are, A kind of person with integrity, that your word is your bond, that your online self is the same as your real-life self. That you are the same person even when no one is watching. And Jesus says that one of the most telling indicators of that is your words. Verse 37, Jesus says, Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Okay, so, so similarly uh, to, similar to what the disciples said after hearing Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce, right? they're like, okay, then who can be married? Or the conclusion is not, is not, okay, I'm not going to make any commitments at all. Right? Because like that's very common nowadays, and that's just another form of untruthfulness. What we should take away from this is we need to make good commitments. And I think one practical thing this means for us is that you have to really evaluate your priorities and your convictions. You know, another definition for integrity is that you are firmly adhering to your principles. You are consistent, whether you are on stage or in the privacy of your room, because you know what those things are, what what really matters to you. And those things that matter, your priorities and your convictions, they guide what you say yes to and they guide what you say no to. After you have decided on something, you don't have to worry about feeling FOMO. You don't have to worry that something else better might come up along the way because you know what matters to you. You you are convicted about certain things. You were informed by the word of God. So have you paused? Have you slowed down to carefully consider what those things are for you? Not just like what everyone else is doing, not just what's fun, um, not just what's self-serving, um, not going about life kind of aimlessly. But like, What does God's word say is important? How does that dictate and guide what you say yes to, what you say no to? Now, what's the goal of all of this? I think all of us hear this. We realize, okay, we fall short. But I feel like when it comes to something like this, right, like following through on your commitments, being reliable, honest, it just seems that for some of us, this comes a little more naturally. Maybe it was just how you were raised, and for others of us, this just is is more of a real challenge. And you know, as your college pastor, I think um, honestly, these are just some of the struggles that I like expect from college students. Um, that. You might be flaky, <laughs> and, <laughs> and not, yeah, that not always punctual, things like that. And, and I recognize that, like, this is a CDM life where uh, part of this is like growing and maturing into adulthood. And um, even for me, I know that I can value those things and, and kind of expect those things out of you guys for for selfish and like superficial reasons, just because it makes life easier or it makes things run a little more smoothly. But is Jesus just a life coach, right? Is, is he just like giving us good practical advice? Like this is just like how you do adult adulting. Uh, as I was prepping this, I was really wrestling with that question. Like why does this matter to us as Christians? What should motivate us towards desiring truthfulness and consistency with our words and promises besides just do better? And so let me just give you one answer to that question. This is our last point. And I know there's probably more answers than this. Here's the big idea to kind of tie these things together. Your words matter because they are an opportunity to reflect God who always keeps his word. Your words matter because they are an opportunity to reflect God who always keeps his word. Now at the end of verse 37, Jesus says that anything more than this comes from evil. And I think that should get our attention, right? We wouldn't say that these things are necessarily evil. We would say, okay, these are things I need to work on, I'm not so great at I don't know if we would use the word evil, right? So this should catch us a little bit. And elsewhere in scripture, we see John 8, 44. It calls Satan a liar and the father of lies. Or you think back to Genesis 3, the first sin, right? Satan told a lie and it caused Eve to question the truthfulness of God's word. And so this is something we need to take seriously. I mean, what, think about it. What often causes us not to keep our word? What causes us to back out of our promises? A lot of times it's self interest, it's self protection. It's when the things that we have committed to we realize are harder than we expected or more costly than we expected. We want to seek our own good or our own comfort, our, our own convenience rather than the good of others. We choose to love ourselves rather than to love God and to love neighbor. We deceive ourselves into thinking that we can live fragmented lives, that we can say one thing and yet act a totally different way. We can promise one thing and never follow through with that. We can think that God doesn't care about all of it. But in contrast, when we do seek to be faithful, when we do seek to be truthful with our words and committed to our promises in a world where words are cheap, we get to reflect our God who always keeps his word. Um, Joshua twenty three fourteen it says this. Know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God has promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. Right? God's word never fails, not even one of them. And not only are his words absolutely true and trustworthy, but he keeps his promises even to those who are guilty and undeserving. When you think about what the, the story of scripture is, it's a story of God's faithfulness to his promises despite our failure. It is a story of God always keeping his word even to adulterers, even to promise breakers, even to hypocrites and liars like us. I mean, can you imagine if, if God's love toward you was just based on feeling and not on commitment? Right? If he just could back out of what he said simply when he felt like it. Right. Or or when we fell short. The cross shows us that God's words and his promises are not cheap, that he did not simply back out of his promise when things got hard, that that Jesus Christ persevered through blood, sweat and tears to fulfill what he he said that he would do. And so for us, when we are people who use our words carefully and meaningfully and truthfully, then in a very ordinary but a very powerful way, we get to reflect that to to the watching world. Right? We get to reflect the faithfulness and the truthfulness of God. When we follow through on our promises, even when it's hard or inconvenient, we show others a glimpse of God's enduring love, of his relentless and pursuing love. When we are thoughtful about our yes and no, we show others that God and the things of God are truly important to us. Now, the handful of times that um, I've had a, I've had the privilege of officiating a wedding, in, in the short few minutes that I get to encourage the couple, there's usually a few things that I really hope that they'll take with them. Um, one of those things is that as they stand in front of their friends and their family, their wedding party before God, Like, I want them to feel the weight of what they're about to commit to. Right? Like, their vows are not just a script that they're reading after me, um, but they are real promises. Right? They are real promises that they are making to one another as long as they both shall live. The husband is called to love his wife as Christ loved the church. The wife is called to joyfully follow and submit to her husband as the church submits to Christ. That is a very high calling and a very weighty responsibility. And um, when I get the privilege of officiating, like, I want them to understand that, right? Like That matters. But at the same time, I want them to realize that neither of them will fulfill those responsibilities and follow through with those promises perfectly. I don't want them to get so zoomed in on what they must do, that for the husband, they should be like Christ, for the bride, they should be like the church, that they get so focused on, okay, this is what I'm supposed to be, this is what I'm supposed to do, that they forget to zoom out And they forget what has been done for them. That in that Ephesians 5 picture, that you and I are the bride that Christ loved and died for. I don't want them to miss that as well. And I I think those truths are true and relevant, not just for a couple on their wedding day, but also for us and all of our words too. That our words do matter, right? We can't take them lightly. When we make a promise, we're making a promise that is intended to be kept. And yet all of us will not do that perfectly. All of us are guilty of speaking carelessly, of breaking our commitments, of not keeping our word, of being inconsistent and lacking integrity. But God is gracious. And our failure to keep our promises ought to drive us back independence to, to God, right? And to cling to his promises. And not only does his grace save us and, and forgive us, but it also sanctifies us. In Ephesians 5:27 it says that Christ works in us and prepares us as his beautiful bride to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. And only through the gospel can we be people of integrity. And only through the gospel can we be people who are actually whole and complete and truthful and faithful. Right now, as we strive to honor him, even in the most ordinary and mundane corners of our lives, the things that we say, the promises that we make, um, the yeses that we say, the no's that we say, right, God transforms us into that image. And so may he do that work in us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, just your word tonight. I know that uh, yeah, maybe this is a topic that we don't give enough thought to. Um, and so, Father, I do pray that Uh, we would be able to process all that we heard, that we would be um, honest, truthful people, that we would really recognize the weight and the value um, of our words, that they would be uh, unlike the world, where talk is cheap, where um, people don't follow through on their promises but I pray that you would make us like yourself um, whose word is reliable, whose word uh, we can cling to and so help us to Uh, Be more like that, would you use our small group time, our conversations uh, to edify one another and uh, yeah, to move us in that direction. So we thank you God, we pray this in Christ's name, amen.